Well, let me begin by uh, wishing each and every one of you a very Merry Christmas. So glad that you decided to join us today. I know there are a lot of people out in the lobby as well. We are glad that uh, every one of you is here. We had no idea uh, who's going to come at 10 o'clock, who's coming at 3 o'clock, who's coming at 5 o'clock. Uh, looks like a lot of you decided to show up for this one. It's, uh, it's great to, to do this. And uh, just as we spend some time in God's Word together, I'll tell you, I entitled this message, Waiting for Christmas. Um, some people cannot wait for Christmas. Other people cannot wait for Christmas to be over. I, I think most people fit into that first category. They, they approach Christmas with a sense of uh, waiting or anticipation or even longing. Uh, there is a sense of anticipation as Christmas approaches. Retailers wait with anticipation for the Christmas season because it is often a make it or break it season for them. They've got that sense of waiting kind of built in. Children wait for Christmas with a sense of anticipation and longing. A lot of that revolves around the presents that might be theirs on Christmas morning. I think that waiting for Christmas is especially apparent when you're young. Christmas just cannot come quickly enough. You just wait for it. But even as we get older, I think a lot of us still kind of have that mindset of waiting for Christmas or approaching Christmas with a sense of anticipation. Maybe it's because of the gathering of family and friends. Maybe it's the the food and the, the, the good times you'll enjoy. Maybe it's just the time off work or the presents you get to give or receive. I googled that phrase, waiting for Christmas, and the very first thing that came up was the lyrics to a John Legend song called Waiting for Christmas. I thought maybe I should give it a listen. The lyrics to the first verse said, all the trees alight, all the holly streaming, the town has come to life waiting for Christmas. I still feel low searching for some meeting, meaning until you come home, I'm waiting for Christmas with you. That was about as much as I could stomach. Um, just the usual sort of cheeseball, pop, lyrics, sentimental, sappy, all of that. But whether it's because of wanting to be with the one you love or because of some other aspect, we do wait for Christmas with a sense of anticipation or even longing. But there's a much older and a much more significant kind of waiting for Christmas And that's the kind of waiting that took place even before there was such a thing as Christmas. And in order to fully appreciate what that kind of waiting looked like, I want to draw your attention to a passage from the Old Testament book of Job. Now, I told Andy that I would be preaching on... Uh, from the book of Job on Christmas Eve, and he said in all the years uh, he's been coming to church, he doesn't think he's ever heard a Christmas Eve uh, message from the book of Job. Uh, Maybe there's a good reason for that, and you're about to find out. Uh, But if you're familiar with the book of Job, the book of Job is a book about, or that tells the story of a man named Job who experienced a lot of loss and a lot of suffering. He experienced the loss of his children, the loss of his material possessions, and he suffered an excruciatingly painful and mysterious illness. And the book of Job is presented to us as a series of dialogues between Job and his friends and between Job and God. 
And even though he wouldn't have articulated it quite this way, there's one chapter in particular where Job expresses a longing or a waiting for Christmas. So I'm going to read to you now from Job chapter 9, and then I will bring that into a more traditional Christmas passage that we find in Matthew chapter 1. Job chapter 9 is one of Job's lengthy speeches. So listen now as I read from Job 9. It says this, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be right or in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. What he has hardened himself against, or who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who, al- who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and the Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? And then right at the end of the chapter, it says this. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So if you've read the book of Job... Uh, you know that Job asks lots of questions. In this chapter, he asks a, an important question. Actually, this chapter, what we find from Job's speech is a question, a problem, and a plea. So let's begin with the question. Again, Job asks lots of questions throughout this book. His questions essentially boil down to questions about his suffering and God's Sovereignty, And he wants to know how he can square those two things. He wants to know why he is suffering as he is. But his question here in chapter 9 is interesting. Here's what he says in verse 2. How can a man be right in the right before God? Now, that is not a question that we find ourselves asking a lot today. It seems like many individuals and and even many churches are trying to answer a different question. The question they're trying to answer is, how can God be made right before man? Right? How do we make this God of justice and wrath and righteousness more palatable to modern sensibilities? Now, this is not necessarily a new problem. C.S. Lewis is best known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia And mere Christianity, but he wrote lots of lesser known works, lots of good books. One of those books is a series of essays entitled God in the Dock. Now, the dock he was referring to was not the fishing dock, but the prisoner's dock, that little booth that a prisoner sits in in the courtroom when he's being questioned. And the basic idea behind that essay was that modern humans look at things much different than those in past generations did. Past generations had an understanding that they would one day be judged by God. 
But modern people tend to put God on trial. We've placed God on trial and put him in the prisoner's dock. And so the question we ask is, how can God be made right in the sight of man? Job didn't make that mistake. Job understood the creator-creature relationship. And the question he was wrestling with was the question, how can a man or a woman be right in the sight of God? And that question is no less important today. How can any man or woman be right in the sight of God? That's the ultimate question of life for every human being who's ever lived. So there's a question. And then secondly, there is a problem. And that problem is spelled out for us in verses 3 to 12. In short, the problem is that there is a separation between man and God, between the Creator and His creatures. There's a chasm between the two. And Job expresses that problem in a number of ways. He refers firstly to God's unmatchable wisdom. He says, look, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times, right? So you're not going to match wits with God. You're not going to outsmart him. You're not going to catch him in some kind of gotcha moment. He's described here as wise in heart and mighty in strength. And that mighty in strength part is another expression of the problem. How do you contend with one who Job says removes mountains, shakes the earth, and commands the sun, and seals the stars? Now, Job has good theology. He understands something about God's bigness, his power, and his majesty. He's wise in heart, and he's mighty in strength. Theologians refer to these things as God's omniscience, And his omnipotence. And those are really just fancy ways of saying that God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful. So how do you contend with? Or how do you even have a relationship with a God like that? But there's actually more in what Job is saying. Because he's using the language of creation. But he's using it to speak of a world that's been turned upside down. He says God removes mountains. He shakes the earth. He commands the sun, but he commands it not to rise. And he seals up the stars so that they don't shine. So what do you do with that? What do you do when God's ways don't seem to make sense? That's the problem Job is puzzling over. And you have no doubt asked those kinds of questions. But there's another level to this separation between creator and creature. And Job goes on to say he does great things beyond searching out, and marvelous things beyond number. Then he says, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Job is describing the fact that God is invisible and elusive. Now, he sees the evidence for God all around him, but he can't see him. So how can he know what God is like? God's ways are a mystery to Job. God does great and powerful things, but they're often beyond our comprehension. We don't often know why he does what he does. And lots of biblical writers express this same thought. So the psalmist says it like this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul expresses that same idea when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So the question Job asks is, how can a man be right before God? The problem he identifies is that there is a separation between creator and creature, between God and man. And then we come to a plea. And the plea is what we see in verses 32 and 33. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to, get to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Now, I know it's Christmas Eve, and I wouldn't be right for me to ask you to look at the footnotes in your Bible, uh, but there is a little footnote concerning the translation of verse 33. That verse can either be translated, there is no arbiter between us, or would that there were an arbiter between us. Some translations translate it like this, if only there were someone to mediate between us. In other words, Job is either making a simple statement or expressing a wish. Now, I'm not an expert in Hebrew grammar. I'll leave that to the scholars to debate. But when you factor in the flow of the entire chapter, there's a good case for seeing this not just as a statement, but a plea from Job. Job is at the end of his rope, right? He's experienced great loss. He's suffering immensely. He's exhausted all of his intellectual resources trying to make heads or tails of his situation. And the thing that he desires most is for an arbiter or a mediator between himself and God. He, what he wants is a go-between. Someone who understands all the frailty of man and the prerogatives of God. And while he wouldn't put it in exactly these terms, Job was waiting for Christmas. See, it was the birth of Jesus into this world that bridged the gap between God and man. Now, I know I have explained the incarnation of Jesus, his becoming one of us with a number of different analogies over the years. I think my favorite one is still... This one, where author Philip Yancey reflected on the management of his aquarium, and he said this, I spend much time and effort fighting off the parasites, bacteria, and fungi that invade the tank. I run a portable chemical laboratory to test the specific gravity, nitrate, and nitrite levels, and the ammonia content. I pump in vitamins and antibiotics and sulfur drugs and enough en enzymes to make a rock grow. I filter the water through glass fibers and charcoal and expose it to an ultraviolet light. Even so, the fish don't last long. Fish are dubious pets, I tell my friends. Their only tricks are eating, getting sick, and dying. You would think, in view of all this energy expended on their behalf, that my fish would at least be grateful. Not so. Every time my shadow appears above the tank, they dive for cover into the nearest shell. Three times a day, I open the lid and drop in food, yet they respond to each opening as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. Fish are not affirming pets. He went on to say, the arduous demands of aquarium management have taught me a deep appreciation for what is involved in running a universe. To my fish, I am deity. 
and one who does not hesitate to intervene. I balance the salts and trace elements in their water. No food enters their tank unless I retrieve it from my freezer and drop it in. They would not live a day without the electrical gadget that brings oxygen to the water. And then he said, I often long for a way to communicate with those small-brained water dwellers. Out of ignorance, they perceive me as a constant threat. I cannot convince them of my true concern. I'm too large for them. My actions, too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy, they see as cruelty. My attempts at healing, they view as destruction. To change their perceptions would require a form of incarnation. To change their perceptions would require a form of incarnation. In other words, the only way to fully communicate with his fish would be to become one of them. And Christmas reminds us that this is precisely what God did. So I want to take you now to the New Testament, specifically to what we're told about the very first Christmas. In the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we read this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Job asks a question. He identifies a problem and he issues a plea. And what we discover from this passage is that Jesus is God's answer to our question, our problem, and our plea. See, Christmas is about what God did to bridge the gap between us and him. Think about Job's question. How can a man be in the right before God? Well, the answer to that question is found in the angel's words to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua, literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh to the rescue. And Christmas reminds us that Jesus came into the world not just to show us a better way to live, but to rescue us, to save us from our sins, to make us right before God. This is the good news of the gospel. The most famous Bible verse of them all says it this way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. This is what Christmas is about. The apostle Paul put it like this. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus is the answer to Job's question. Think now about the problem Job identified. That problem can be summed up in verse 32 of Job 9. That verse says, For he is not a man as I am. Right? There's a separation between creator and creature. 
So God bridged that gap by becoming one of us. Upon hearing sounds in the dark, a little girl became afraid and couldn't sleep, so she rushed into her parents' bedroom, begging to sleep with them, but they refused. Instead, they prayed with her, sent her back to her room, and told her, remember, God is with you. She went back to her room, tried to sleep, but it didn't work. So she went back to her parents' room, only to be sent away again with the reminder that God was with her. She went to her room again and tried to sleep, and again, it didn't work. She made her her way to her parents' room one more time, and this time they were a little less patient with her. Didn't we already pray with you? They scolded. Didn't we tell you God was with you? What's the problem? And her reply was classic. Well, God doesn't have any skin on him. H.B. Charles said, Before the incarnation, every method God used to declare his love was misunderstood. God didn't have any skin, so his expressions of love were viewed as acts of tyranny. In the incarnation, God perfectly declared his love for us. He spoke in a language we could understand. He did so by becoming one of us. God becoming one of us is spelled out for us in John chapter 1. Listen to how that story unfolds in that chapter. In verse 1 of that chapter, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. And then in verse 14 of that chapter, it goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. And then in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. But the only God, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, Jesus is God's answer answer to Job's problem. And Jesus is also God's answer to Job's plea. Job longed for an arbiter or a mediator. An intermediary or a mediator must be able to represent both sides. And Job says he wanted someone who could lay his hand on both parties. Jesus is uniquely qualified to do that. Matthew sums up what happened by saying, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that ancient prophecy from Isaiah helps us understand two things about Jesus, his humanity and his deity. He is born of a virgin And he is God with us. And the reason Jesus is the only mediator is because he is the only one who has both a divine nature and a human nature. To use Job's words, this means he can lay one hand on us and one hand on God. No one else has this ability. Not the angels, not the saints, not the leaders of other religions, not your favorite celebrity pastor. You know, your, your parents, your grandparents, your pastor can pray for you, but only Jesus is qualified to be your mediator before God because only Jesus is fully God and fully man. His incarnation means he is the man, Christ Jesus. He's the one who can bridge the gap between God and man. Well, I told you I entitled this message, Waiting for Christmas. And I, I want to close just by reminding you that we don't need to wait for Christmas any longer. And I say that not because it's December 24th today. I say it because Jesus has come. 
We have a way to be made right before God. We worship the one who has bridged the gap between God and man, between creator and creature. And my prayer for you this Christmas is that you would know Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christmas. We thank you that while we longed to know you, we have questions about who you are. You revealed all of that in the person of Jesus. And you sent him to be born into this world. Fully child, grew into a full man, and yet also God. And you sent him to be our mediator, to be the one who could bridge the gap between us and you. And I pray that there would be no one here today who misses out on that relationship. Lord, you have restored that relationship for us. And we pray we would enter into it with fullness of joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.